Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Jeff Redknapp, a veteran makeup effects artist whose credits include everything from Fido and Windchill and Pathfinder to Watchmen and Mission Impossible 4 and Final Destination 5 and The Cabin in the Woods and Arrow and Fringe and Supergirl and Legends of Tomorrow and The Flash and Arrow. The list goes on and on and on. He's also been building a solid portfolio of short films, and his first feature, The Unseen, starring Aidan Young as a mill worker hiding a life-changing secret, arrives on iTunes today after its Toronto theatrical run. It's a genre film unlike any other genre film I've seen before, and it's well worth a look. Jeff picked No Country for Old Men, Joel and Ethan Cohen's Oscar-winning 2007 adaptation of Cormac McCarthy's acclaimed 2005 novel about three men in small-town Texas. A cop, a killer, and the opportunistic civilian whose impulsive action sets them all on a collision course with one another. Featuring expert work from Tommy Lee Jones, Javier Bardem, Josh Brolin and Kelly MacDonald, and beautifully photographed by Roger Deakins, the film wowed audiences on the festival circuit and went on to win Oscars for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Supporting Actor for Bardem. It's hard to argue against any of those, so... We didn't even try. This is someone else's movie. I chose No Country for Old Men because it's probably the most inspiring film I've seen since it came out. Okay. Like, even today, I, I've you know, seen a lot of good films, a lot of great films, but there was something about the experience of watching No Country. I saw it um, at the Toronto Film Festival... The year it came out, which is what two thousand seven. Yeah, I was I was get this one wrong. Yeah, but I so I saw it in like September. Sure. Is that yeah. when Tiffith? Yeah, that's when I saw it too. Yeah, and I remember just being blown away at the theater, just shell shocked. And I walked out of the theater, and the one of the first thoughts that I registered was, "Wow, the world doesn't know what's coming." <laughs> Like, this isn't going to get... I think it got released maybe Christmas time of that year. Yeah, I want to say, like, late November, early December. I remember, like, three or four months later it was coming yeah, out. Yeah, it took and, a while. And at the time, because, you know, sometimes sometimes big festival screenings, they're, like, a week before it goes wide. And in this case, I knew it was going to be sitting dormant for three months, and I just could not believe that the world had to wait three months to see what I just saw, and it's going to just wreck them like every everybody I talked to who I knew would appreciate this I didn't spoil it but I just said you know the, the latest Coen Brothers movie is going to blow your mind you know it, it just changes everything and I've had a few experiences with films like that where like they are just so imp- they make such an impression that, that you, your, your head is in a fog and you're just dazed and you talk about it for days like um uh Pulp Fiction sure, was yeah. one of those films where I just saw it and I'd never seen anything like that. And I went to Denny's, I think, with friends after. And we sat there for two and a half hours talking about it. And I remember that just like for three days, that's all we talked about. And I, pro- I probably went back and saw it again like that week. It was so crazy. But No Country was one of those movies where it was just like it, it validated so many things about filmmaking that... 
I, I mean, I know it's not arrogant, but the things I love, but also things that I wanted to do in film. Sure. Yeah. And I'd have had a lot of people tell me, you can't do that, you know, like no music, uh, you know, such a laconic lead character, so little dialogue in some ways. It's not, you know, like not the most dialogue free movie, but um, I, I had a I had a short film I wanted to do at some point and um the people that were going to make it with me they didn't they didn't think it would work they were telling me no it doesn't work you can't do it that way you can't do it that way and i pulled out once upon a time in the west and i made them watch the opening train station sequence sure yeah and after they saw that they went okay you can do it (laughs) it it could work because that movie you know like the first what seven eight minutes of the movie there's no dialogue yeah it's so stark and yeah, and and that is similar to this, and that like the sound design in that sequence is it's a little dated, but it's still amazing, and all of the little creaks and the windmill, and, and I put a windmill in a short film of mine um, just because I wanted to do a little homage to the squeaky sure. windmill. Except in my movie, it was a lawn ornament. <laughs> um, but yeah, in this film again, like the sound design is just breathtaking and, and I watched it again on on the flight out here and I, I think I heard a sound that I'd never heard before oh yeah and it it was on, I was headed on iTunes and I was like oh there's no skip back button so I don't want to go back three minutes because I'm kind of cramming for this and <laughs> and I was like I'm gonna have to go back and see if I did hear the sound that I think I heard I'm I'm going to guess that it's in the motel sequence where there's all those little hidden... Well, it, no, this is it's kind of an obscure one. It's when he goes to Llewellyn Moss's trailer park when Sugar goes to... I'm probably going to mispronounce names That's and stuff. That's fine. But when, when Sugar goes to the trailer park and he goes into the office and talks to the woman about, you know, he's looking for Llewellyn Moss. And he's like, well, did you check his trailer? And it's like, you know, he's, he's probably at work. I can't give you no information. Yeah that sequence and he asks her three times where does he work and she just stands you know she keeps saying did you not hear me yeah and at that point you're like he's gonna kill her he's gonna give her an ultimatum and he's gonna kill her but then he stops and he leaves and this time watching it i think i heard a toilet flush that in the background okay that would suggest there's another person there and that somehow changed his like trajectory yeah yeah now he's got to kill two people and maybe that person doesn't fit into it because you know she's breaking his rules of you know now he's going to make it make her flip a coin or whatever but if there's another person there maybe that ruins it maybe that's why there's the sound of a toilet flushing so i don't know but everything about it is just brilliant yeah i don't remember it but now i mean i don't remember that it's not there either it certainly Mm. sounds like that would make sense it's yeah it is i'm 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 really glad you picked it because Three and a half years in, I'm stunned no one else has. Uh, we've had a couple of Cohen brothers pictures chosen, but I wonder if this one doesn't like it doesn't occur to people as a definitive. Oh, I want to talk about the Cohens. You know, you go to the the Big Lebowski or the or a Serious Man, which are the two that have come up. Yeah, and those are both kind of perfect representations of what everyone thinks the Cohen brothers does as a do what yeah. what everyone thinks the Cohen brothers do as a as a collective, which are antic verbal weird singular experiences that are all about people trying to reason their way into and out of things and so is this but it's set apart by its starkness and its emptiness and you know those guys are in love with language and almost no dialogue 
matters because no. nothing matters because it's all about the implacability of the things that are coming for you. Like in, in this film, as in a serious man, the attempts to understand it only make things worse by the characters. If they're trying to reason their way out of the problem, yeah. the problem is just going to roll over them. Uh, the universe doesn't care if you know what's going on. And the, it's so perfect a statement, you know, you can't stop what's coming, the thing that they kept using. Mm-hmm. It's so concise and perfect a statement of what they do as filmmakers, but it's so unlike anything else they've done that it's just, it's this thing that occupies its own space within their filmography. And I, I mean, I love it, but mm-hmm. I never think about it as a Coen Brothers movie. I just think about it as this incredible, like this sumptuous visual experience. I think there's a lot of people that don't even remember it as a Coen Brothers film because mm-hmm. it is. It, I think it's more a Cormac McCarthy, yeah, than a Coen. And you know, I mean, we know it as a Coen Brothers film, and there are some things like the the some of the framing and some of the pacing is Coen, and some of the attention to details is Coen. But yeah, it, well, apart from Anton Shaker being such a weird-looking character. Yeah. There's really no quirk in this. I mean, a little bit of Western, over-the-top, twangy. Yeah. I mean, they went on and did True Grit, which is more Cohen in a, in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, like because they have these like these, these weird, overly talkative characters and yeah. overly self-expressive. You know, like Matt Damon's character just goes off at the mouth yeah. the whole movie. Yeah. And then they he bites off his tongue. You know, it's like it's 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 a lot more Cohen than this, but. Um, mm. Yeah, and I mean, this watching this movie motivated me to go read Cormac McCarthy. I was going to ask if you'd had if you'd encountered the book beforehand. I had not encountered it before, but I believe um, I'm trying to remember the timing on when did the road come out? It would have been after a couple this. of years later. Yeah, two thousand yeah. ten. Honestly, I may not have gone. This introduced me to Cormac McCarthy, but then I think maybe the road motivated me to actually read the book. Okay. And then I went on and started reading every Cormac McCarthy I could find, and and this is a great novel, and and uh, and uh, the road is the road is great, but it's a really light novel. There's not a lot of words on the page, and then you start going back in his his library, and uh, they start getting thicker. Yeah, he's got a something called the Border Trilogy, which is actually three Western stories, and and they're pretty thick books. And I, yeah. I think the one. Is, is it all the pretty horses? I think the Matt oh, Damon yeah. did a movie that was yeah, Cormac McCarthy and Billy Bob Thornton adaptation. Yeah, yeah, I think that might be one of the Border trilogies, and, and that makes sense. And I, re- I'm starting to read the second one. I don't remember the name of it. Um, there's one, the Great Plains or the Something Plains. Mm-hmm. I think is one of them. I think Blood Meridian's its own thing, and I read that one, and that one's a dark, dark yeah. story. I don't know if apparently. Um, What's his name? Uh, the actor who just did the d- disaster artist, uh, oh, James Franco. Franco. Apparently, Franco owns the rights to almost all the current McCarthy really? books. He was smart enough to buy them before anyone knew who the, he was. Okay. And that's why he made um, he made one of them into a film, Something Child, the Something Child. Oh yeah. And I I had to turn that off ten minutes. I, yeah, and it was I, just I so haven't seen it. Ugly. It's not that it was bad necessarily. It was just so ugly. I just did not feel like <laughs> experiencing it. So, okay. But uh, he apparently has the rights to Blood Meridian, and I, it's it's kind of scary because I don't know if he's ready to make that film or ever will be. 
and so he'll either make it and fail or he'll make it and shock us all or he'll get someone else to direct it and that might be the better choice yeah I had heard that I, I among all the other weird little stories you hear about the Coen brothers because they don't offer very much information about mm-hmm. themselves in interviews even when asked head on yeah. someone had said during TIFF that the reason this they, they made No Country because they couldn't get the Blood Meridian rights oh okay but I don't know that it's true but it makes mm. sense I mean having having seen what they do with No Country for Old Men I think it's possible that they're carrying over some of the the darkness of Blood Meridian into yeah. it because the book is the book of No Country is a much easier read yeah it's, it's a sort of a a level even tone yeah as opposed to the 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 sort of insistent pressing horrors of Blood Meridian mm-hmm. which translates into the movie where the film is much more dark and foreboding of no country yeah than it necessarily read on the page like yeah I remember the read not being quite so you know it was more of a story than I mean this is a study of violence and study yeah. of character and you know some of the violent scenes in this movie are just really shocking I mean Shigar's whole cattle yeah stun gun is disturbing but I mean I think the first violent act in the movie is when he takes out the uh, deputy that pulls him over and takes him to the station and he it's it's very disturbing and how long it goes on yeah. and you know the the moment where he you know he's choking the guy but then he know he realizes the handcuffs have cut through his 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 artery and at that moment he turns his head away because he doesn't want to get blood on his face and yeah. it's just like oh that's so disturbing yeah and the pleasure that he takes in the action yeah and it's the the, the that the genius of casting Javier Bardem for that where yeah. he is ambiguous to the end in that I don't know if he actually does take pleasure out of everything he's in the first mm. the first killing that first murder he is into it because it's his solution yeah but then there are all the other ones where you know he he doesn't seem to be taking pleasure in the opportunity mm. to cause harm he's not a sadist but he's compelled. It's it's the the OCD of you have to make a choice, yeah. so I can know what to do. Yeah. And I, I I think the thing that distresses me the most about him is that he puts so much uh, energy into his purpose. Like this is a person who knows what he wants to do. He doesn't really seem capable of existing in any other way. I mean, there never there's no scene where he goes into a diner and just has breakfast. I don't think he eats. <laughs> I don't know that he is. I, he eats peanuts in the gas station. Yeah. That, that's but about all I recall. Does that sustain him? Like, is he yeah. just a Terminator? We don't... We never really fully know him. And that's so disturbing because no one... Everyone else is trying to reason with the problem and he'll yeah. just come in and kill you. It doesn't actually matter what you want him to do. Yeah. Well, I and, think... I think he's less about um, taking pleasure in it than he is, um, and I'm only just sort of piecing this together or remembering it, but, you know, I think there's a line where where, uh, Woody Harrelson's character says that he's, I think he says he has principles, because the the guy that hires him asked, what do you know about him? And and he says something, I don't know if the word is principles, but he he says something like, you know he has principle, or he, you know, because he knows he lives by this weird code, yeah, and he's obviously experienced it. And what I'm just sort of putting together now is that this is the story of a, you know, part of the story is multi generation lawmen, and they live by a code. Sure. Yeah. And Tommy Lee Jones's character goes on about you know how the old timers did it. They didn't carry a gun. They lived by this, you know. And and Tommy's got a code. You can see it. 
every step of the way that there's you know he does things and and what troubles him the most is that he's coming up against something that he doesn't understand they've yeah. never seen this before they don't know how to respond to it and it kind of breaks him i mean by the end of the film I mean, he's retired yeah. unexpectedly but i think that's that's an interesting dynamic that you've got this psychopath guy that lives by a code that he's created but he lives by it yeah so i think when you you wonder if he takes pleasure in it i don't think he so much takes pleasure in it he's just he cannot break his own code and at the end when he he take, kills carla jean you know she's just like it telling him point blank it doesn't make any sense like you don't you know i mean she Woody Harrelson's character is a little more predictable in his response to getting facing Shigur. You know, he's like, yeah. you don't have to do this. And he's like, that's what they all say. And he's like, and he tries to ra- justify it and rationalize his way out of it and, you know, talk his way out. But it's all stuff he's heard before. So it doesn't mean anything to him. Yeah. But Carla Jean is a little more defiant. You know, her response to it is just like, it's, it's stupid. What you're doing is yeah. stupid and doesn't make any sense. And she she defies him to the end by saying, I won't, you know, I'm not going to call it. I'm not going to let you do that. Yeah. And you know she dies. He walks outside and wipes off his shoe. But that's the weird thing about him. He lives by this code that he's created and somehow floats through life, you know, mostly unscathed until the very end when just a completely random act does the most harm to him than anything in the movie does and causes him the most... You know, there's the biggest threat to him yeah. because the cops are coming and he's injured and he's got a bone sticking out of his arm. So this is what I mean about him being a Terminator, though. He just gets through it. Yeah, he's he's a functioning assassin, except that he doesn't see himself that way, or maybe he does, or maybe mm-hmm. he does. like we never know anything of his heart. We only know what he needs. Yeah, which is fascinating and distressing, and like the best villains are the ones you can't get all the way inside. Or the ones that you completely empathize with, but don't know that you don't understand that they're the villain until the very end. Yeah. You know, the classic uh, reversal thing. This doesn't have any reversals, and this is what I meant about it being a darker film than the novel. Like Llewellyn is dead from the beginning. Everybody's doomed. Mm-hmm. These people who touch things, who are in the wrong place at the wrong time, or the right place at the wrong time, and are contaminated by this external force, whatever this evil is that acts like a magnet that brings sugar to them. There's, there's no. It's like the house from the grudge. You walk in and it's over. Mm-hmm. And you might not be dead right away. It may take a few days for it to find you, but yeah. it's over. And that's the thing that, that the finality of it, the, the, the sadness of it, it just it's it's leaden. Yeah, Ed Tom is carrying that with him, even though he gets away, mm-hmm. he escapes all of this. He doesn't connect to the. He doesn't touch anything. Like, it doesn't affect him that way. Yeah. And he's still destroyed by it just because he witnessed it and he knows what it means. And that vaguely setting it in the 80s too makes it feel like there's something else going on. The the world is changing and he's the only one who can see it so he gets out yeah. and he'll retire somewhere and he'll know for the rest of his days that he could have saved these people but he'd be dead too or maybe he couldn't have saved them but nothing would be better that all of it would just be worse if he had engaged. So yeah. the sad that that final monologue, you know, like to bounce around the movie, um, that that Jones delivers the thing that the thing that Tommy Lee Jones does as an actor that no one else does, I think, is weariness. Mm-hmm. Not in the same way. Like Hackman can do it, but Jones just lives it. It's you see the exhaustion in him. 
and it's at that point where you know, like the bags under his eyes are they haven't totally taken over his face mm. yet in 2007 now they yeah. kind of have now yeah they look they almost look like effects versions of themselves because he's just because as you get older everything gets larger yeah if but, you don't yeah if you don't fix it yeah but he looks so human and weary and beaten by the end yeah. like all of these things he's done all of these little irritations that he overcomes on a daily basis just to be a police officer have done nothing to change the world and the story he tells and the way he, the, the pauses the choices the, the way he tells it and just the the clarity in his voice knowing that it's all over mm. it's just it's amazing and it always goes on longer than I think it does the monologue or yeah. yeah I mean I know where it's going to end I know the beat but every time I watch the film it's just like no he's still going there's more and it's yeah. just and it's compelling as hell yeah. but because the you know it's 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 the reverse of the psychiatrist's explanation in Psycho which is totally unnecessary and just eats up time this is unnecessary to the plot but it's so essential to understanding why the film is so sad and what what it's about yeah that by the time we get there i just want to live in that i want him to tell me i want him to sing me to sleep basically well, it is a sad ending you know i mean so many people die so many characters die in the film that it's sad in that regard but tommy lee jones his uh ed tom that's what his name yeah. is uh he it's such a weird name too. I know. So distinct. I had there were moments in watching it on the way out here that I, I I realized that oh that line that I've never quite understood what was being said it's somebody saying his name it's yeah. Ed Tom. It's like I didn't understand that's what you said, but um, it's it's like you said it's especially sad because you watch Ed Tom in this film and he's so good as a lawman you know he doesn't need to pull his gun he talked about guys that didn't carry him and then he doesn't even pull his out because he knows nobody's in that trailer but he tells the, the junior officer um what's his name wendell yeah he tells wendell so. up up and out you know or out and up i think he says and and they go in the trailer you know and he, and he sees the milk and he sees the condensation on the bottle he's like he sees everything when they go out to the desert he's just he's in he's picking up on everything i mean wendell's pretty good at interpreting it too but you just get the sense that Ed Tom's been doing this a long time. He's, he's he's really good at it. He sees everything. He understands people. He understands what happened in crime scenes. And um, but then as the movie goes on, you start to see the cracks. Like and, yeah. and the one I noticed this time was when he meets up with Carla Jean in the diner. He tells that story about the local guy that had a run in with a steer. He was trying to slaughter, and he he talks about how this thing didn't go the way things were and he said so you know even uh, what's the line even in the in the battle between man and steer the outcome's not determined or something and then he says yeah but things are different now they don't they don't kill them that way they've got this little device that punches a hole in their brain and comes out about that far and it's like you're talking about the yeah. thing that Shigur uses but you're not making the connection you've yeah. already been told that there was no bullet in the guy's brain but there was an entry wound and so you start to see Ed Tom not being able to handle this new stuff, this stuff that's beyond. Like they say that a lot. Yeah. And then at the end of the film, uh, well, I mean, towards the end of the film, he's literally standing outside the hotel room, and Sugar's on the other side of the door. And uh, it's, it's weird. That's a moment in the film where I, I always forget. I feel like 
when I'm watching it, it's like, oh, he never opens the door. He just, he's on the other side and he never opens the door. Yeah. But they, he does open the door and yeah. then he's not there. Makes it worse. And then there's clues there. There's like the screw from the vent and there's a dime that he used to unscrew it and it's all lying right there. And so Ed Tom could have put it together and figured it out, but he, he just, this one is beyond him. Yeah. And I don't know, being on the other side of the door, it's like that's, that's a tipping point that just he doesn't come back from. Yeah. Well, and the scene in the diner where he does lay it all out is great because in any other movie or in a conventional thriller, that would be the moment where he stops talking and has his revelation and realizes what's going on. But this is the real world-ish. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the thing that Coens do that almost no other filmmaker's capable of doing, I think, is to convince you that fiction is unfolding the way it would. I mean, it was the genius of Fargo, right? Where they yeah. basically lied right up front and said, this is a true story. And your brain justifies literally everything. Yeah. All the ridiculous things, all the impossible connections, all the leaps of logic, the things that no human being would rationally do. It's like, well, it's stranger than fiction. It must have happened like this. Yeah. And then I remember theatrically, like it came up at the end. This is a work of fiction based, like the standard disclaimers at the end. And I thought, hang on, that doesn't make any sense. And then I did a little digging in 1996. It took a little longer. Yeah. But yeah, it was great. It was an amazing, just the, the, the fact that you can convince an audience that this is all true yeah. by being as outrageous as possible and have us make the make the leap for them we willing we don't suspend our disbelief we believe yeah and in, it's real yeah, yeah and in no country it plays the same way it's that that grounded approach to this outlandish outsized story yeah where i believe that yeah of course he doesn't make the connection because why would he that would take too much and it would require, as you said, it would require him to think in a way that he's not prepared to. Yeah. And and connect something so horrible, something so mundane to being used on human beings, which would be so horrible that his, he retreats from it, which in the end is exactly what he does. Yeah. And the, the idea that you can make a, a nail-biting thriller about what's essentially an ethical conundrum, people coming up against the thing that they can't comprehend... It's a natural disaster movie, right? In yeah. any other way, it's this something is it's a plague film. Something is killing people, and we have to stop it. But you can't stop it. It won't be stopped. Yeah, you can't stop it if you can't figure it out. Yeah, and you literally can't comprehend what's happening. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. No. What do you say? Um, you said the, the, the Fargo says it's a true story, and you go in assuming it's a true story, and you never doubt it until the, the, maybe the end of the movie, or until later you figure out that no, this was not a true story, and they come right out and tell you it's not a true story in interviews later. Yeah. Um, first time I saw the Blair Witch Project, I was misinformed that it was based on truth. Okay. And that really shaped my impression of the movie. I had a, I really enjoyed the first Blair Witch. It fully affected me. I think the way it was supposed to. And in part, that was possibly because I had been told it was based on a true urban myth or a story. Right. Um, and the same, I, I think you're right. I mean, one thing this film does that supports that, they don't say it's a true story. Well, what did, don't they say something at the beginning of this one? I don't remember. I don't think so. I think maybe in Ed Tom's even... opening monologue, he says something about it. Oh, this is a story about... Yeah. And also there's... I don't know if this even relates to it, but when he talks to Carla Jean about the killing the steer, later when Carla Jean phones him, she says, was that story true? Mm-hmm. And he says, what? What story? Oh, that? Well, it was true in that it was a story. Yeah. And that's his, you know, and that's, that's like 
very meta, you know. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I think one of the things that another thing that I said in the beginning that um, this film validated a lot of things that I want to do in films and I now do in films. And one of the things is that my I believe my stuff is very logic driven. You know, like if I even if it's fantasy, like an Invisible Man, I have to be very logical about how he achieves things and what happens and when things like um, the scene in my film where he has the he he goes into the men's room and he's injured, and he's got to figure you know he's trying to figure out what to do with these broken ribs he's got on it you know and he he sees a towel dispenser one of those old big cloth rolling towel right. dispensers. And it was my logic is like he essentially he needs a bandage, a tensor bandage. And I was like, what well, that would be perfect. And if I was in that situation and I, I would pull out my pocket knife, which I wouldn't have, but <laughs> the character did, and I'd cut it off and I'd reel it out several feet and I'd cut it again and then I'd rip it in half and I'd have strips of bandages to support my broken ribs. And and that was the logic that I used to build that scene because I need, I can't just have him go in there and take a shirt off and tie it around his ribs. You know, it's like, it, you know, he can't just walk in there and happen to find something. Right. It's got to be, every step of it's got to make sense. And No Country is brilliant that way. Like, how much screen time is devoted to how he gets the, uh, the satchel full of money in the air vent and then out of the air vent. You know, yeah. he has to go to a sporting goods store and get the tent with the most poles and duct tape. And, you know, and he's got all the tools. I mean, he buys a shotgun and turns it into a sawed off shotgun. So he's got the shotgun. He's got a hacksaw. He's got a file to take the burrs off the muzzle. Yeah. You know, he, he does everything. He, it's all those little details. And then you know, the Coens or I, I don't know who to credit Cormac or the Coens, but together they created this film where every little detail is in the movie you know like how you open an air vent with that's screwed into the wall if you don't have a screwdriver well most people have a dime in their pocket and that you know if you've ever done that you know it works and just those little details you know like the the the, the whole hotel sequence or motel i guess it is there's so much of that you know like he goes in the room he goes in the office i need another room you know it's like do you have a map and he's like i want that one you can have the room beside your room it's like no, I want that one. And even on this viewing, I had to. I, I was watching. I was thinking, when Shiger goes in the room and kills the Mexicans, is it? Are they in their own room or are they in Llewellyn's room? Right. And I had to actually pay attention to see if we saw the number on the door, because I got the sense they were like in another room waiting for him to come back. But this viewing, I confirmed they are in his room. Yeah, waiting. They're, they're decoys, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, and they come and he goes in there. But I mean, and even the scene where Sugar rehearses going in the room, where they're going to be, he and where's the light switch, and when I walk in, where would they be? There'll be someone here. There might be someone behind this wall, and this wall is thin enough and weak enough that I can blow a shotgun through it. And then there's the bathroom, and they'll be in the bathroom, and he has it all figured out because he rehearsed it. How many movies would actually show you the rehearsal of an execution scene like that? Yeah. They just, oh, it's action. He just kicks the door in and shoots everybody. And it's like, no, this movie has to give you all the, the logic, all the pieces. Yeah. It's the preparation. It's the effort. And, just and, and yeah, strangling that first deputy. Like just the work that goes into it. It's yeah. that Hitchcock said, you know, it's very famously, it, it takes a very long time to kill a human being. Uh, and nobody cares like nobody nobody ever cared to re- to retain that information because 
murder is just something that's cool in movies. I mean, it, yeah. it looks fantastic. If you do it right, it's, oh, it's, it's it shocking right. and thrilling and terrifying. There, and the Coens just linger on it. Because yeah. it's ugly and unpleasant and someone is dying. Well, you know what the strongest visual for me of that opening sequence where he kills the deputy? It's not that you see him slip the handcuffs around to the front. It's not that a, the timing of the phone call. It's mm-hmm. not the choking. It's not the blood. It's all the shoe scuffs on the ground. Yeah. There's this radiating pattern struggle, of yeah. black shoe scuffs from both of them and the kicking. And it just screams of how hard this guy tried to stay alive. How many little marks? Every little one of those marks was one of his feet kicking the ground. And it's just like, there's probably 150 of them. It's just, those are the filmmaker details. Yeah. You talk about the logic details, but the filmmaking details and the visuals, you know, you got to give it to Deacons too for what he did. But, you know, it's just that every shot is beautiful. Every sound is perfect. Every character makes complete sense. You know, we haven't even really talked about Llewellyn, you know, his character you know, the first time you see him, he's shooting a deer, or I think it's a deer, I don't yeah, know what it is, out in the desert, and he um, he picks up his casing. And that tells you a lot. You know, he's either very frugal, and he reloads his own. Right. Or, or he's, he's poaching. poaching. Yeah. I think, and it could be both, you know, yeah. but he's poaching. And that's what it tells you. And it's, it's, it's cross-cut. Is that right after the deputy getting killed? Um, or is it right after? Because it's... Yeah, I think... I haven't seen it as recently as... Or maybe as, as But I think it is... I think it's... Our, we're introduced to Chigger first and then to... Yeah, we see him get picked up in the desert and then... Yeah, that's so the deputy happens and then he cleans his hands. I, I remember watching it yesterday and seeing that there is a, there's a cut from... What we cut from to the first image of Llewellyn out in the desert poaching, mm-hmm. there's a logic connection there. There's, I mean, It might be that he's using a sight on the deer and there's something right before it that yeah, matches that. I think that's right. But it, it, it's all intentional to show that Llewellyn is you know, a smart man, but not necessarily guiltless, you know, like he's poaching. Yeah. That's your introduction, he's poaching. But he's also practical. He rests his gun, his rifle, on his boot. He took his boot off, put it on the rock, and he's resting his gun on it. Like, those are the details that I love. Yeah. And, of course, that's there to tease us into thinking that as the more we see of these characters that they might be evenly matched yeah oh yeah that Llewellyn might be the guy who gets the drop on him because that's how it always works that's how heroes work that's how they paint a perfect story here is that the two are almost perfectly matched they're perfectly matched to fight yeah but even in the end Llewellyn's outmatched although his if I remember it right his demise actually comes at the hand of the Mexicans right it's not Chigurh that goes and kills him. It's the Mexicans find him in the yeah. hotel, and I think they kill him. I didn't get the sense that I think get the sense Chigurh comes there after and gets the case. So it's the same randomness as like Chigurh getting hit in a car accident at the very end of the movie. You know, like the thing that actually brings Llewellyn down is I th- that the Mexicans find him. Yeah. So it is a, it's his initial illegal act. It's stealing the money. Yeah, well, I mean, that's classic storytelling. You, you know you make that one mistake, and it's you're never recovering from yeah. it. Like, you know. And just at this point, I mean, we've I, seen so many iterations of find a bag of money, bad things happen. You would yeah. think he would know better. Of course, it's the early 80s, so maybe he, he hasn't yeah. seen those things that we've seen. Well, it's interesting, because I always think about the movie like... One of my favorite lines is, um, you know where are you going Llewellyn I'm fixing to do something dumber and ha- dumber in hell than I'm doing it anyway yeah 
and I always think that that's what brings him down, this act of kindness, this, you know, dying man's wish, agua. Mm-hmm. So he goes back out to the desert with, desert with water to give to the dying man, and it's all in vain because the guy's dead. And he gets the, the Mexicans show up, and he ends up shot and in a river and shoot bootless and all that. But I'm not sure if that is what brings him down ultimately, because he has the satchel of money with a transponder in it, right? Yeah. So he's already doomed. Yeah, it's just a, it's another yeah another movie that I'm thinking of now in a weird way is it follows where once you're tainted it's the it's it's the the classic horror thing yeah. you can't escape because you don't even know the rules you don't know how to operate yeah and he's you don't understand what's out there yeah and he's a small timer whatever else he is he's not an ambitious man he's not he doesn't he doesn't know what he's in for he simply thinks he can get away with this big bag of money yeah and of course you can't and the brilliance of it is like often when it's like find a bag of money they focus on the wrong things with the character they make the character really a good person who really needs this money yeah but in this case as much as he you know he's a living in a trailer park Carla Jean works at Walmart you know I mean he's not homeless living on the street desperate for money he's actually got a life and it's pretty you know it's low income but it's it's a nice life he's yeah. got a beautiful wife and she's sweet and she doesn't seem to mind working at Walmart yeah they seem know? happy yeah so he it, it, he didn't need the money but he got the money and then the so the focus I think on his character is that he's almost smart enough to get away with it like he's he's just savvy enough and, and it's the whole blurring like, you know he's not a perfect good guy but compared to how extreme sugar is he's and I guess he's not the good guy, really, because Ed Tom's the good guy. Yeah. It's like he's in the middle. And he's yeah. literally in between the two of them. He's, you know, Sugar's after him, and Ed Tom's trying to help him, and Ed Tom comes too late. And that's kind of what breaks him, I think, the fact that he couldn't save Llewellyn. Yeah. Even though he gave his word, he would. But, uh, yeah. I can watch it any number of times. Can't turn it off if I find it on TV. It was the first Blu-ray I ever bought. Oh, yeah. It's just like it had, you know, it had come out. It was amazing, and then Blu-rays became available. Yeah, it's, like, it, it's just it's so perfectly calibrated to break you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just it's such a, a terrific experience, and it's beautiful. And I mean, I remember sitting through it. I think they screened it for us at the Cumberland. I saw that and Diving Bell and the Butterfly mm-hmm. within twenty minutes of each other, and two of the best films I saw that year. And they were just. TIFF pre-screenings so late August probably and I just walked out of the theater that day feeling good about everything <laughs> just about about cinema and about oh, yeah. movies and storytelling and all of it um, and then three months later There Will Be Blood showed up and it was shot across the, the field you know the story that one, one of them had to shut down production uh, because the other one had to blow up the oil well and I, I assume it was Paul Thomas Anderson had to blow something up yeah uh but they were shooting at the same time in marfa texas just across a valley from each other uh the same windmill appears in both films if i remember correctly and it's just such a strange confluence of of talent and story and the two films are nothing alike except they both feature characters who are manically determined and unstoppable yeah i mean they're they're totally very different but there's a there's a commonality of purpose between sugar and and daniel plainview yeah. that just amuses me I, I just keep thinking they must have ended up at the same bar some night just sitting and talking about what they were going to do 
I'm sure they did. And yet, so different. And so and so perfect. And yeah, the casting again. We didn't really talk about Kelly McDonald, but someone who uh, I'd only really known from Train Spotting more than anything else. And here she is, eleven years later, in a completely different mode. Yeah. And she's great. And the Coens somehow knew that she could sell it. That like their casting instincts have long since been established. But yeah. this one really does have a perfectly packaged cast. It's all faces. It's all it's all minimalist performances. Even even Bardem is sort of stopped down from some of the bigger, you know, think about what he's doing in Skyfall or even um, Vicky Cristina Barcelona, where he's just sort of selling himself. And here he just exists. He's got that yeah. creepy stillness. Well, the story I heard was that when you know, when he broke out in the indie world and Hollywood said, oh, you know, come. Yeah. They basically, you know, they said, what do you want to do? And he said, I want to work with the Coens and I want to work with Woody Allen. Nice. And th- that's what led to those two roles. Like, obviously, his people reached out to the Coens and said, I don't know if you've seen this guy's work, and he's, you know, regretting him. He loves you guys. If you've got a part for him, he wants you to keep him in mind. And somehow he became Shigur. And I, I can just imagine how that goes. It's like you walk in the room, and it's like, okay, you're going to be Shigur, you know, but we're going to give you a weird haircut. Yeah. We're going to put you in a, like, almost childlike denim jacket. You're going to walk, you're, you know, you're going to look like an idiot, basically. But you're going to be one of the darkest characters ever created for cinema. Okay. No. Yeah. Sign me start. up. Yeah. That's kind of how it, those that caliber of, like, I know Woody's in, you know, under a big cloud right now. But, he, you know, he's the same. Like, he basically writes movies where he has people in mind for them. And then he just reaches out to those people and says, I wrote this for you. I want you to be in it. And most people go, yes, I'll be in a Woody Allen movie. And, yeah. You know. Don't know if that's going to continue happening. No, I think it's the tide's already sort of shifting against that, and people have come out. And, you know, people. Who, uh, Rebecca Hall has sort of recanted her last work, with, her last role with him. Yeah, a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I won't work with him again, and stuff like that. Yeah. But and it's, I mean, that's a whole other conversation about you know, the man versus the work. You, know, yeah. you can't deny his work. It's one. It's a thing that comes up here fairly often, as you can imagine. Yeah, like we've done episodes on Polanski films and, and Woody Allen films, and. Yeah. Yeah, it always. Have you done Vicky Cristina Barcelona? Uh, no, not that one. I've done. I think the only one so far has been Annie Hall. Okay. Uh, Jeremy Lalonde picked that a couple of years ago. Because okay. oh, that was because Vicky Cristina Barcelona is like one of my favorites. Really? Yeah, I just. It's it's so weird. His films are sometimes so hit and miss. Like I started watching Wonder Wheel. It turned up on Amazon Prime, and I was oh, I didn't get to see that because it barely played anywhere. Mm. And I started watching it, and I'll, you know, probably about 20, 30 minutes in, and I'm just like, oh, the dialogue feels so stagey, and it's it's Kate Winslet, you know, like how can you how can she mess anything up? But yeah. it just feels really stagey. And then you look at something like Vicky Cristina Barcelona. Apart from there's certain scenes that are kind of stagey, but the stuff between Javier Bardem and uh, oh, Penelope Cruz, it's just brilliant. Like that the sequence where it's like. You know, speak English. We speak English here. It's just like, it's almost mammoth-esque. It's like Woody at his best when he's got these actors that are just like this multi-dialogue threads happening simultaneously. And the irony of, you know, he keeps telling, you know, speak English, we speak English here. But then he starts speaking in Spanish and doesn't correct himself. And it's just... I don't know. Those, the, the, this, this, no country in Vicky Cristina Barcelona were the films that just put heavier on my... Oh, and of course... um, Beautiful. Oh, yeah. Beautiful was actually one of the corollaries for my film, like in terms of wanting to do a very real human story. 
even though we had an invisible man in mm-hmm. our story, it was like, I still want the real world, the small town living, the life, the family, the job. I want it to have that real tactile, mundane quality that you see in, in Beautiful. Right. So that was one of our corollaries. Well, that's interesting. And Beautiful has a fantastical element lurking in the background. It does, yeah. I tend to forget that. You, yeah. know? Like, you don't realize that he's actually you know, clairvoyant or whatever you want yeah, to call it. Yeah, whatever it is is really happening. Yeah. Yeah, it's well, and that that does kind of bring me logically to the question about your work, and and you know what of if anything, what of no country have you borrowed or absorbed into your own creative DNA? But it's a larger question, I suppose. If you if you see, well, the the thing about the unseen, we were talking before we started recording. The thing that I, I really admire about it is that it it works as a character study that also has a fantastical element in it, but if you remove one or the other, the story still works. Yeah. It works as a genre piece, or it works as a character study. And, and just the idea of someone who is marginalized and then literally disappearing, it's just it's such an easy leap to make, but no one's ever done it in a way that actually respects the concept of a marginalized character rather than just using it as a, as a, a lever into a bigger adventure story. Yeah. Like your movie is small and stays small. It stays focused. Yeah, um, is that something that you got from No Country? You like, never take your eye off the ball. Or? I'm not sure if I got that from No Country. I mean, some of the reviews of the Unseen they said that it, you know, the invisible the man represents the fading working class. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of small towns they thrived on industry, and those industries are drying up, and people are moving to the bigger cities, and the small towns are dying, and 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 people pointed that out about the film, and I was like. That's great. Of course, I meant to put that there. Yes, um, but I mean, there is some of that. It's there's no countries about change and not understanding what's coming, and you know, you're living in the ways that you were used to, and the things change. Um, I don't know. I think no country is more inspired the way I write characters, the way they talk. Mm-hmm. Um, I I would say that. I mean, there's obviously a lot of films that inspire how I write characters and their dialogue, but. The first thing that really shaped how I write characters was David Mamet. Okay. I was at university and I took a course on playwriting and, and not writing, but on playwrights. And he was one of the ones we studied. And the second I, re- I read his play, I was like, this is how people talk in a slightly stylized version, but really this is how people talk. And it, it shaped, if I got one thing out of four years of university in my English degree, was discovering Mammoth. And then um, uh, Cormac McCarthy has shaped the way I write characters. Now that I've started reading his stuff, I've watched his films, but now also going back and reading his books, it shapes how I I write characters. And I I grew up loving Westerns, so I love the Western-type characters, and I'll put them in anything I can. And I do think that uh, Bob Langmore, the, the, the gruff, small-town, sawmill worker, millwright character, he is a Western-type character, you know. He's, he's like the man with no name. He's, you know, gruff and few words and, yeah, you know. You definitely get the sense that he'd rather not be talking to people, even when he has to. Yeah, and I mean, I think story-wise it makes sense because he's hiding a big secret. Mm-hmm. He wants to avoid any conversation, any interaction, keep people at a distance, you know. But um, 
it's definitely the Western type characters that inspired me, and this being a contemporary Western, it, it just it spoke to me. You know, I forget where it fit in my timeline, but I wrote a short, a short, a script for a short film that I haven't made, and it was a Western. And then I expanded it, the idea I expanded it to a feature. But before I wrote the feature, um, actually no, that's what it was. I saw this film. And I went on a road trip with my dad in BC to some of the small towns that he'd worked in 30, 40 years earlier. Okay. And I saw these small Canadian towns fading, like turning into ghost towns, but it's not the Wild West, it's BC, and it's now. So the, seeing that and seeing this movie motivated me to change the Western I was going to write to a contemporary Western. Okay. And it's, it, I haven't made the film yet, but it's, uh, it's called Hangfire, and it's set in a small northern town. It's actually a supernatural thriller, but it's very much Western-type characters, small-time characters, and I, I put a lot of that in the unseen, too, like the small-town characters that I grew up with, the kind of guys that drive pickup trucks and work in sawmills. And, and I mean, the main character of Bob is based on a longtime friend of mine that I grew up with. And he still works in a sawmill, and he tells me stories, and I put some of that in the movie. And, yeah. I find that, I mean, I, I was going to say that the archetypal Western is back, but it's never really gone away, has it? I mean, the, the idea of independent people fighting for their own interests and inevitably on a collision course with one another, whether it's legal or illegal, whether it's yeah. moral or immoral, it's Breaking Bad, it's... Um, uh, what was the other thing I was thinking of just recently? It's basically a Western. Sweet Virginia, Jamie Dagg's film. Haven't seen it yet. It, it takes place at a motel in Alaska, more or less, okay. but it's the same thing. It's a man comes to town, a man leaves town, yeah. and bad things happen in between. And it's all about... I think now it's all about the focus on the, on the individual, the idea that there is um, you know, still someone willing to step up yeah. Whatever that is, whatever they're stepping up for. It's the code. It's and doing the yeah. right thing. It's it's the you know the old the old ways, the right ways. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, they they say almost everybody says they love westerns, but almost nobody goes and sees them when <laughs> Hollywood actually makes them. Yeah. And for that reason, Hollywood won't make them. Like if you go to L.A. and you talk to people about making movies and you say you want to make a western, you know, you better be uh, Michael Mann or someone who's got this incredible track record, and they go, yes, you should make a western. Um, I talked to Frank Darabont at a film festival at one point, and he, I, I think I said to him, you should make a Western, and he said, I've actually been developing one with Tom Hanks. I okay. don't know if it's ever going to happen, but yeah. um, they said, you know, everyone loves them, everyone wants to make them, but nobody goes to them, So they, and they don't travel, apparently. That's one yeah, of the genres is. they say don't travel. You can sell them North America, there's a certain audience for them, but in the world there really isn't. Yeah. So every once in a while you get a great one like Open Range and That's, stuff. Like yeah, that was the last the last great American Western that I can think of. Mm-hmm. And Sweet um, Sweet Country, uh, Warwick Thornton's film that was mm-hmm. a TIFF last year. It's Australian, yeah. sort of has an exception that way because yeah. it's historical, but it has Western textures and elements. Yeah. But I think if you asked him straight out, he would say it wasn't a Western. Yeah. I mean, The Revenant was what I would call a frontier Western. Mm-hmm. I put it in the camp with Jeremiah Johnson. Yeah, man versus environment. Yeah, rather than you know, good guy, bad guy sort of thing. Although there's a bad guy, but mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, the end scene doesn't really have a bad guy either. Right? Yeah, that I mean, was just the it's the situ- it's the economic situation, the realities that people face. Yeah. That make them do things. Well, I read uh, I read a book by Stephen King about writing. I think it's called On Writing. On writing, yeah. And uh, he's you know it's a very simple book, but one of the things he says is you basically you pick a character, you put him in a circumstance, and you go with it. And that kind of stuck with me. So I I just like came up with the idea: Invisible Man. What would he do in our world? Or, or even a more isolated world, you know. Like I didn't want to have him like living in L.A. and he's turning invisible. So it's like he's an invisible man in Canada. Where what would he do? Well, he isolate himself to protect his family, protect his secret, and all that. And so I think that's why my story just started as you know, this is him. This is his problem. This is where he is, and this these are the decisions he makes. It wasn't like oh, and who's going to be the bad guy? Because in most Invisible Man stories, the bad guy is a government agency that finds out about them and they want to experiment on them or use them as super soldiers or whatever. Right. And I was like, no, we're not doing that. So we're not going to have a government agent. There's going to be no, and there isn't even going to be a cop looking for him. You know, it's not even going to be that predictable. So there really wasn't an antagonist until he had to make a deal with the devil to go find his daughter. And, and it's one of those, it's kind of like, Finding a satchel of money—it seems like an easy enough thing. Just take this to this to Vancouver, yeah. drop it off, pick something up, bring it back. Don't even want to know what it is. Just do it. But circumstances work against him. You know, he's gone longer than he thought. The guy gets twitchy and threatening him, and and then there's a there's, not to give away secrets, but there's a sort of a double cross in there that has nothing to do with Bob, but it still motivates the third act. Yeah. You know, and I mean. These, those are the kind of things that were inspired subconsciously by films like No Country. Yeah. You just well, it is. It's the sense that a neophyte can figure out, you know, oh, I'll be fine. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. And just being completely overmatched by the world. It's not even by circumstance, necessarily. Yeah. It's just, this is what happens when you go somewhere you shouldn't be or pick yeah. up something you shouldn't pick up. Yeah, it's a moral breach that brings hell down on everyone. Yeah, and I mean, in my in, there's a first, sort of first act, uh, I guess it would be first act twist that is really quite random you know he has a car accident that leads to what he has to do next yeah and it's i think in the script it was random it just like bad luck car it actually was in the script originally it was a car crosses the middle lane and he just has to avoid it and he crashes his truck but um partly the logistics of doing a stunt sequence with one car going out of control versus two cars Mm -hmm. in our budget it kind (laughs) of became like don't know if we can do two cars and then I think it was Aiden that, you know, because his, one of his big contributions to the whole film was that, and I don't even know when he realized it or when he shared it, but he concluded that the process of him fading away piece by piece mm-hmm. was painful. Oh, that was him. Yeah. I don't, I mean, there was, the idea was in the script that injuries accelerated it, mm-hmm. you know, and his car accident accelerates it. And when he you know, gets his face banged up, then things, you know, anywhere that his body experiences trauma... My logic was, you know, if he, he gets punched in the nose, he breaks his nose, when the tissue of his nose starts healing, it heals as invisible tissue. Okay. And then there's sort of a radiating effect. So anywhere that he's suffered a trauma, I mean, there is a genetic thing, it's, it's implied like it's a genetic disease that flares up at a certain point in his life. But the idea was that trauma and injury accelerated it. Mm-hmm. But then from that, I think Aiden extrapolated that it was painful. So just it's not just that he broke a rib that he's hurting. He's hurting all over because of this transformation he's going through. Yeah. So that was a big part of it. I thought that was something... I mean, I know that was something I'd never seen before. Just the idea... Because in, 
I, it, in Hollow Man, during the transformation sequence, it's a big deal that he's in pain. Yeah, he's screaming. That they're suffering. And I thought, yeah, sure. It's a traumatic experience. Yeah. But the idea of it happening more slowly makes it a disease. It makes it much more identifiable and relatable. And I remember, yeah, the first time, I mean, I saw the film almost two years ago now, yeah. and I remember thinking, yeah, that's really unsettling. Like, that concept of body horror is that this thing is happening to you yeah. constantly. And where, wherever, whatever it is, it, it made me see him as, you know, it's, it's almost like watching an animal with cancer. Yeah. When you can't, well, you can't explain to it what's happening and it can't understand it. There, you know, Aiden told me some things about how he saw it that was similar to what you just said. Yeah. Um, I had one response from a, uh, a reviewer who, a podcast guy who, who t- called me and talked about the film, and he told me that his day job was uh, he worked, I think, in, in palliative care. Okay. So he worked with people that were facing end of life, and he said this movie screamed to him about somebody in that state. And not just because Bob's character is is considering killing himself to protect him, everyone from his secret, but just that it's a disease and it's progressing and you're watching, you're losing yourself to it. Yeah, literally. And yeah, and so in this case. It, was, it was, that was another one of those things that's like, yeah, I totally thought of that when I wrote it. It's like, <laughs> no, but I'll take that, you know. Yeah. So. It's just a take on it that I hadn't seen before. And, yeah, and literally, and it's we're, uh, pre- we're pretty proud of that. Actually, you know, we feel like we've created the uh, a new take on the Invisible Man and an iconic Canadian character. You know, I saw I saw a post yesterday where somebody said, um, well, they said that the Unseen had given us a Canadian Invisible Man and they mentioned Wolf Cop had given us a Canadian <laughs> Wolf Man and so yeah. where where's Frankenstein Dracula and the mummy or something or the creature the next ones yeah like will we even have a creature from the Black Lagoon do we have an do we have an well, Amazon we, we, Del Toro kind of did it yeah that's what the that's what one of the comments said well we had Shape of Water and they shot that in Toronto yeah. so that kind of counts but exactly yeah, I, I had to fly him in I, I had know, to bring him in from the Amazon I mean I don't want to sound like a pretentious artist but it's you know, as I've been creating things, I feel like every once in a blue moon, I create something that I go, wow, that's truly original. Or that really worked. Yeah. You know, like, I, you know, I forget my examples. I used to have a short list of the things where it's like, whoa, I did something really good. You know, a lot of it is just work or attempts at getting somewhere. But every once in a while, you have like a really good idea or a really good execution of an idea. Um, and definitely in that camp is the idea that I reinvented the Invisible Man in, in my way. Yeah. And, and I'm pretty happy with how it turned out, you know? Yeah, I think it's... I mean, I'm glad it's finally getting a release. It's one of those things where it's hard to sell a movie that does something different with genre. Yeah. Although I think we're at a place now where it's easier to get audiences to understand when you're taking a risk with something they think they know. Yeah. When we're more open to stuff like Hereditary and It Follows and, and maybe The Guest. Those are all movies that present you with a thing and then proceed to completely rearrange what that thing is and count on you knowing the history of horror yeah. and, and genre. And, and The Unseen isn't really like that because it's not really a horror film. Not really. I mean, no. it's, it's much more operationally realistic. I describe like, it as a dramatic film with a genre vein. Yeah, running that's, through it. That's a good way to put it. Because you know, it's just, I mean, it's some of it was logistics and some of it was budget. You know, like 
most people that would think you're going to do an Invisible Man movie, like, you know, the Johnny Depp one that may or may not even happen in the yeah. new dark universe. Kill it. Yeah. Um, actually, somebody told me that their description, their take on the Unseen is, this is what Universal should have done. If they want to reimagine all those movies, this is the kind of reimagining they should do, not what they did with Tom Cruise and The Mummy. Yeah, I mean, that was just... That, that that film demonstrated to me that they're not ready to do yeah. the Dark Universe or whatever it is that they think they're doing. It's just, you've made Life Force. Do you not notice that you've made Life Force? Life Force is 30 years old and yeah. it should stay where it is. These things don't... You know, reinterpretations are fantastic, but you have to come up with a reason for the reinterpretation to be happening in-universe and, and nothing in The Mummy did that. Um, but yes, as far as genre reinterpretation and, and reinvigoration... It feels like we're at a place now where we could radically redesign the iconography of horror, that there is yeah. a way to do stories, but people always want the thing that they think will be, will be easiest to sell. Yeah. So you get the mummy and you get... You I don't know. think it's so much the audience that's the problem, it's the people that know they have to sell the movie and make a profit. They're yeah. afraid to try new things, they don't know how they're going to sell things that are different or weird. Um, you know, we're kind of finding that part right now with this film. You know, we, you know, we're not getting as much ex- distribution as you know in the world as we would hope. You mm-hmm. could, given you look at the critical acclaim and you think, oh, that's going to lead to people wanting to see it yeah, and demand and it for happen. it, <laughs> and it just doesn't happen. They, you know, they'll find the next Insidious and release that wide across North America, and yeah. it's the same thing we've seen ten times in the last ten years. And yeah, but the brand sells, the package sells, the poster just, sells. Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I mean, I wish that uh, critical acclaim translated into box office because it would make my job a lot more valued. Yeah. But the the thing I keep coming up against is the idea of permanence. Where, yeah, okay, theatrically it'll have a short life, but it'll never go away. Like it'll be on VOD, it'll be on disc, it'll be around for people to discover. And I think mm-hmm. that this is the kind of film that will be discovered. Like No Country for Old Men wins the Oscar. It's distributed by Miramax or Disney, it, it's never going to go away. It's, yeah. it's a huge film that is, uh, a, like, strangely one of the Coen's most successful films, even though it's just so distinct from their other work. I mean, I, I, I'm glad they won all the Oscars for stuff. Yeah. I'm glad it happened with Fargo, but it's, uh, it's, it's great that this is out there in the world, but it's not the movie I point to to show people what the Coens do. Yeah, and I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that when the movie opened, it wasn't a huge success immediately. Well, it was a platform release, right? And I know it took a while. Yeah, like opening weekend, 1.2 million in the U.S. Mm-hmm. U.S. gross, 74 million. Worldwide, 172. It's, if I remember right, it was more winning the Oscar that really spearheaded the, yeah. box, the box office. office. That's like when it, it still happened, right? Yeah. When the film still could benefit something. from it. Yeah. Yeah. But... Um, but nothing ever disappears anymore. Well, it's funny. I'll tell you one thing. Like I said, you know, every once in a while, I feel like something I create or come up with or write is like, oh, that's a tr- as close to a truly original idea as I think I can muster. Yeah. And reinventing the Invisible Man the way we did, I had that feeling. And then one of the thoughts I had later was, even though books are becoming obsolete, is like this is going to end up in one of those monster books where they talk about the history of monsters in film. There's going to be a chapter on the Invisible Man. Yeah. And going forwards, the one the writers that actually find my film, they'll include it. 
because it's a new chapter in the the evolution of the Invisible Man as a film character and mm-hmm. depiction of film. And I thought, you know, like 15, 20 years ago, I would be the guy buying that book yeah. about monster movies. And now I know that at some point my film will be at least immortalized in those chronicles, you know, maybe on Wikipedia. I don't yeah. know. So is there another creature you want to try to redefine or was this the one that you wanted to do? This, I mean... I don't know if there is another one I want to redefine. Um, nobody's made a perfect Wendigo movie yet. No, and nobody's made a good Bigfoot movie. I did write mm-hmm. one, but I was uh, I was asked. Uh, I, I met somebody who reportedly had money to invest in film, and they they were looking for th- something, and they said they wanted something formulaic. And so I thought, well, I think I could do a take on a Bigfoot movie that would be formulaic, but still cool, because we haven't really had anything. Yeah. And then I wrote it, and I gave it to them, and they said it's too formulaic. So that that's another one that's sitting on a shelf. I don't know if anything will ever happen to it. Um, I wrote something recently that's a little bit Invasion of the Body Snatchers, in, 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 in a sense. It's mm-hmm. a, you could call it a reimagination of that. Um, I definitely, when we made the the Unseen and it was finished and people were appreciating it, it did make me start thinking, you know, what more could I do with this kind of thing? There, there was some interest in turning it into a TV series. And I thought, well, do you just do that? Do you, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I want to, but when I was trying to figure out how I would do that, I did start to expand the, the scope. I didn't want to just do a story about invisible people in the world. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, what if there's invisible people... But there's also like the real, real world version of, of vampires or or other oh, I see. monsters yeah. that we consider classic monsters. Um, well, actually, one of the corollaries that I, I didn't hear. I don't know if I ever heard it from anyone, but I think that the unseen owes a lot to Near Dark. The practical treatment of well, yeah, the, the real world treatment. Like for me, Near Dark was the first and only vampire movie. I, I mean, I've never really loved vampire movies. I know the classic Dracula and you know the visual treatment of Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, but vampires in general haven't interested me. And when I saw Near Dark, I was like, "This is awesome!" Because this is what they would really be like. Yeah. So I did think that there was a connection between the unseen and that it, this is like our very gritty real world version of vampires and I've given you a sort of really real down to earth version of Invisible Man so I think the vampire one's already been done yeah that's a good one too oh yeah it's a pretty great movie it's a bit underrated Catherine Bigelow yeah I, I mean to circle back to no, uh, no Country I do really think that Bob and Llewellyn Moss are similar characters in a lot of ways you know they're facing a problem and they're trying to deal with it logically and practically and they have you know loved ones to look out for you know like pretty much everything well moss does is trying to protect carla jean from it mm-hmm. and even though Shigur says that he had a chance to save you but he chose to save himself and she says not like that yeah. and you know what she means like he didn't do it selfishly he did it so they could live he wasn't trying to save himself he's you know, and that's that's what Bob's doing. He's trying to protect his family by isolating himself. He's trying to protect his family by killing himself, you know. And so I do think they're very similar problem-solving kind of characters. And I think I'm I'm kind of 
I guess you write what you know. So I'm I'm a bit of a problem solver, you know. Like it's just how I I function. So and that's part of I, well, I, when I started doing my day job makeup effects, working on film sets, you know, I used to tell people that what I really am is a problem solver. And a lot of people in film are problem solvers, you know. Right. Like some people have very specific jobs and they do the job and it's the same thing over and over again, repetition. But a lot of what we do, you know, in film is just problem solving, you know. As a makeup effects person, you know, something you bring it to set and it doesn't work the way it's supposed to and you've got to improvise, you've got to change it, you've got to re-brig it on the fly. You know, it's problem solving. And as a writer, well, as a director on set, it's always problem solving, you know. It's like you get there and the location isn't what it was supposed to be or, or some weird little logistic thing like I mean how many filmmakers have rewritten the scene on the fly because they get there and the car won't start yeah so the big driving sequence turns into a parked sequence and the location is locked and they can't get in so it's they shoot it outside instead of inside yeah or, I'm always you know, it never ceases to amaze me how rain can change everything yeah. Just you know, like you can't count on the environment, so you shoot a different scene a different way, and then all of a sudden, you unlock something, oh, yeah. and it's it's a better film or it's a different film. And either way, it's the thing you have to go with anyway. Yeah, yeah. It's all about practicality. Yeah, we had snow in our film, and it was all real snow. Like we didn't have the budget to <laughs> actually have fake snow. Well, we dressed fake snow into the garbage dump, but we didn't have any money to really like do snow effects. Like in real film, if you want it to snow, you bring fake snow and big fans, and then yeah. you make it snow. And if it is actually snowing, great. But you got to be ready for it to stop snowing, and then so then you make it snow. Mm-hmm. Same with rain, you know. Like a lot of scenes in movies, the world is wet. Yeah. And we make it wet because if it starts raining, we can't make it dry. <laughs> so that's that's why we do wet downs where we bring in a water truck and we hose down all the roads and the sidewalks and everything so that they look wet and then if it starts raining we're not screwed mm. but we had a scene in my in my film where we, we went, were outside the sawmill and it was snowing and uh, it was brought to my attention that we're shooting in this direction and it's snowing if by the time we finish shooting this and we turn around and shoot the other actor if it stops snowing you're not going to be able to cut it together. You're going to see snow and no snow, snow right. and no snow. And it was just one of those, you know, indie moments where you just go, we're going to go for it, you know, because it looks amazing. <laughs> and we're just going to pray that it keeps snowing. And we're going to get turned around as quick as we can because it's like real world stuff like snow and real real light. And it just all looks so great on film. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we enhance things like the weather, but... There's nothing like, I mean, our northern locations and the small town locations where there's Kelowna, BC, it's snow, it's lakes, it's mountains, it's just gorgeous, you know. And we got all that for free by, by driving five hours out of Vancouver, you know, like that, that's what it cost us, really. My thanks to Jeff Redknapp, whose very good first feature, The Unseen, arrives on iTunes today. And you can catch up to his makeup effects work in Tully, Deadpool 2, and next month's Alpha. You can follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Redknapp, all one word, and you can find No Country for Old Men on Blu-ray and DVD from Lionsgate in the U.S. and Alliance in Canada. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever, it would be greatly appreciated. 
Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.